missing connection to science night. Please stand by. Welcome back to another edition of the Science Night Podcast. Tonight, we got a little bit of a different feel. The Cyanide team is gathered around the parlor table, and we're going to talk about seances and spiritualism. But I think we should, you know, identify ourselves to the spirit world and those that are listening. So my name is James, and with me tonight in this ghostly and oddly perfumed and wallpapered room is Steffi Boo. and Jason. Hello. <laughs> so like I said, we're talking about spiritualism and there's a lot going on when we talk about that word. You could think of a lot of different things. So let's like actually be good communicators and define what we're talking about. I am talking specifically about the 19th century belief that one could communicate with the dead through a variety of means, most often a medium of some kind. And we're going to talk a lot about that later, but I think first got to talk about these wacky Victorians, right? Steffi, what do you think about when you think about the Victorian era? Dresses. Dresses. And wooden yeah. teeth? Is that like the thing they had then? Maybe. I don't think so. <laughs> Jason, same question. Uh, Victorians. Perfumes to cover the smells. Oh. Yeah. Lots of, lots of wacky smells going on during the Victoria era, that's for sure. But also the rise of uh, microscopy. Oh, really? Yeah. So that's what I think of, right? I think of uh, Lister, Joseph Lister, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, discovering how to use a microscope to understand cell structure. That's amazing. There's actually so much overlap with the Victorian era and science history. Like, it's incredible. It's so the Victorian era is like this weird turning point in history where we have like the old world and the about to become modern world. But we have like this borderland that is the Victorian era. Can I just jump into that? my teeth comment? Because I just Googled Victorian teeth. And the or first thing that came up was why did Victorian brides have their teeth removed? What's the answer? In order for the husband to escape the costliness of future dental procedures. Oh, that seems lit to check out for sure. <laughs> just yeah. Can't. Yeah, yeah. Right. That's just called putting a fence around the law, right? That's, uh, that's all it is, right? That's all it is. It's like just in case there's going to be some problems, let's just have them removed now. Because it's so much easier to pull a full tooth out than it is to pull a rotten tooth out. I would yeah, imagine. That's true. I've never done yeah. either. I've never done either. Yeah. <sighs> so anyway, back to this weird, wacky Victorian era. Like all good turning points, you have like some holdovers from the era before, and you have like some of the proto of things that are coming. So like Jason said, we have the rise of microscopy. We also have the very beginnings of like the germ theory of disease. Mm -hmm. So we have our our good buddy uh, uh, Semmelweis washing his hands like there's no tomorrow, and everyone else being like, why? Are you washing your hands, you nerd? Uh, that's you, you 
learn all about that on one of our old episodes when we talked about the Semmelweis reflex. It's not about water being too hot. It's about the science being too new. Moving on. We got modern plumbing. We got modern heating systems. We got the modern telegraph. We got all these things with the word modern. We got surgery. X-rays. X-ray people. We got x-rays. If you look at the first x-rays too, this goes back to like ghosts and everything. It looked eerie. Like people would be like, this looks like ghosts. It's so eerie. Yeah. And oftentimes people who were x-rayed at that very, very beginning, like that bleeding edge of technology became ghosts soon after because they were horribly irradiated. There's a lot of things that happened in early days of not understanding, right? You know what else we have in this like scientific era of discovery in the Victorian age? Science fiction. We got science fiction happening because we finally got enough science to fi. So to all the people who loved our production of the science of science fiction presented by Indiana Sciences, hey, thank those Victorians. It wasn't all like lace and and, uh, uh, stratified social settings. There's also some fun sci-fi happening. And we also have mass production. So this is like the first time that we can talk about the style of a particular age and actually have it be like pretty codified because people were getting whatever was like available through the mass market. And this is when like mail order catalogs were becoming really popular. And there's just like this Victorian look because mass production of furniture, art, books, all this fun stuff is happening at the time. So we have like all these things swirling around on the like science and industry side of things. And then on the other side, now we're talking about religion. So the Victorian age is when religion becomes a little more personal and a little less like codified by these large old traditions. And we can see that uh, during the second great awakening in the United States, which is when we have like revivalism and Protestants becoming even more Protestant-y. So we have uh, the burned over district in New York, which if you read a lot about spiritualism, you'll see that repeated over and over and over. Basically, the idea is you don't need these big fancy churches to go to every night for mass. You can just hang out at home and read your mass produced Bible or whatever scriptures are available to you. And that's fine too. So we got like all these things. And we can kind of centralize it on this parlor, like this parlor that we're sitting in right now. Why don't we look around and see? It's just like a lot of knickknacks, a lot of accumulation. Steffi, what do you think about the wallpaper? It's a little busy for my taste, but what do you think? It's a little furry. Yeah. Man, those Victorians love to put like velvet on their wallpaper, huh? Like. Most people come into contact with Victorian era wallpaper when they are ripping it off of the old home that they bought and are are feverishly trying to restore. It's usually like three layers deep and you really got to use the uh, cred cutter, get it off like right on top of that plaster and then you pull the plaster off and then it's just like another problem. Like, I was going to say, then your wall falls off. I've done that. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> Victorian wallpaper is stronger yeah. than the plaster in which they use to create, right? I think the problem is that most people re- don't remove Victorian wallpaper with absinthe. That's what you need to do. You need to <laughs> remove it with absinthe, not wallpaper yeah. remover. Yeah, we just need to go back to Poe and listen to what he said about absinthe and wallpaper, right? That's what he was taught. That's what the Raven 
was about. Mm-hmm. It was about wallpaper removal. That's right. Um, <laughs> that's right. It was like, uh, you know, I'm going to put this absinthe on the wallpaper and that wallpaper will be there nevermore. <laughs> Boom. Checks out. Solid. Solid history. We're going to talk about this Victorian parlor. But this is usually when there's going to be like a disembodied voice coming in and saying something clever like, all these external factors are manif- manifesting internally within the Victorian parlor, that crossroads of culture for the era. But here's the thing where we got to throw a bunch of caveats up. This is happening in the parlors of very, very wealthy people in the Victorian era where they can accumulate all of this accumulation that the textbooks will like to talk about. Because here's the thing about these wacky Victorians. They were like the epitome of pack rats. They collected everything. Like postcards, furniture, art, busts of notable people just like clogging mantles. We have like fancy looking clocks and so many doilies. So anyway, the Victorian parlor served as the crossroads of culture where the external factors of science, industry, and religion manifested in the internal culture of Victorian homes. It wasn't uncommon for religious texts to sit next to scientific texts, combined with artwork showing classical landscapes, carving of prominent figures, and so much wallpaper. Steffi, what is in your perfect parlor? Skulls. Skulls. Yeah, I like pattern wallpaper. Not real bats. (laughs) Okay. That's where I draw the line. Sure, sure, sure. So had enough of those. Mm -hmm. Had enough of those. No, they don't have to be real ones. But real skulls, real skulls, but not real bats. Right. (laughs) And uh, and and because it's Halloween time, those skull like the skeletons that are not atomic anatomically (laughs) correct. You know what I'm talking about. The ones that are in all the stores. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> the spider. Snail. Have you seen the snail one? <laughs> I have seen the snails. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I like it. I'm all about that stuff. I think it's fantastic. Right? Yeah. It's just chaos. I'm surprised, though. You don't want the skulls of your enemies on the wall there. Yeah. I've switched and made the switch recently. Not their skulls, but they can live... In the agony of their own choices that they've made. Oh, I get it. So it's kind of like instead of to the death, what was it from the Princess Bride? Yeah. To the... To the pain. To the pain. To the pain. to the pain. They can go to the pain. There you go. And burn everything down. I'm also into the taking those landscape, you know, mass produced things that they had in Victoria age and like painting Godzilla, destroying oh, robots, I see. taking over the town. Yeah. Speaking of those wacky Victorians just invading our modern lives every time we think about it too hard, basically every recipe they make on Bake Off is coming from this era too. <gasps> That's right. GBBO just started. So Steffi, I'm so glad you talked about skulls and not quite alive bats because- yeah. We're going to move on and talk about another obsession. It wasn't just like chintz, knickknacks, and wallpaper. They were obsessed with death during the Victorian era. They were obsessed to the point where a memento mori was something that was everywhere, which I'm going to translate that now. A memento mori means that you should be reminded of death. So skull imagery, photos or drawings of dead 
death masks hair art was another thing that was really popular in the Victorian era where they would take hair from dead bodies and create art from it. You can see lots of this in places because hair doesn't really decompose. So you can make art and keep it for a long time. Wow. Yeah. Is it because everyone was dying? Is that why they were obsessed with it? So it's because everyone was dying, but it's because there was this book about how to die well. And it was called... The Rule and Exercise of Holy Dying, a 1651 update for respectable Protestants by Jeremy Taylor of the much, much cooler sounding Ars Moriendi, which is the 15th century work that tells us how to achieve a good death. What do we think a good death is? For me, a good death would just be in my sleep. Yeah, yeah just your, that's what I want. Just it, it just happens. It's not long and drawn out. See, for me, it's kind of like I'm one of the riders of Rohan going in to save Minas Tirith, but like not not one of the ones that make it. It's like the guy whose horse gets shot and spins around. So you want to be the guy who gets crushed by a horse? Exactly. Yes. Very dramatic, but heroically, and also a good scene. Okay. Yeah. But the horse got to be CGI. I don't want a real horse to get hurt. Oh, that's good. Have you seen the show uh, Reservation Dogs? Oh, yes. yes, yes, yes. So you're like uh, you're like the spirit guide. Yeah, right. Exactly. He doesn't make it to the actual battle, but that's right. He he goes to fight Custer, but the horse ends up falling in a in a little ditch, right, and rolls over and crushes him to mm-hmm. death. <laughs> right. I feel like that's my spot, right? Like I make the battle more cin- cinematic in its like surge, but I don't want to actually hurt people. Right? So I want to be really crushed by a CGI horse. I cannot stress enough how I don't want a horse to be injured in this either. Okay. So now we've got a lot of caveats. Yeah. Anyway, basically, a good death is one that is witnessed and recorded so that the family could be certain of your eternal fate and that the standard Victorian funeral ceremony could happen right afterward. So if you actually like Google Victorian funeral, like it is elaborate. There is a lot of black dresses and black suits and black everything. There is horse-drawn carriages. The horses are wearing black plumes. Uh, There's very fancy uh, horse-drawn hearses. Basically, if you've ever... (laughs) If you've ever ridden Disney's The Haunted Mansion, you've kind Mm -hmm. of seen the trappings of a Victorian funeral service. Like, it's super elaborate. It's super codified. There's not a lot of wiggle worm in what you're doing. This is where, like, the American tradition of having a wake or a viewing is coming from this era. This is, like, what had to happen for a Victorian family to kind of, like, be okay with the death. Because death was happening all the time. Like, lifespans were kind of short. Industrialization was creating industrial accidents. New means of mass transit means that mass casualties were happening for kind of the first time in this era, at least. So, So death was something that was kind of, like, around. And very traumatic, the way those accidents are happening. It could be. And the way you find people from, I mean, that sounds, that's a lot compared to what they had before. In the early part of this, it was all still kind of happening locally, right? So like you could have an industrial accident at the boot black factory you were working at. I couldn't think of something that wasn't like a non-Dickens pull from that. (laughs) And it's still going to like happen in the town or like in your neighborhood or something like that. So your family can kind of like be there or at least like collect your body and have these funeral things. And again, like the very, very elaborate Victorian funeral services are again, 
for the very, very wealthy. Other things are happening for less wealthy people, but there's still some kind of formal ceremony that even, even um, the less privileged are taking part in. This is also why like Victorian fiction is always so grim and dark. It's because people are dying constantly. There's all these images of death and dying everywhere. So this is like the era of Poe, of Penny Dreadfuls. Uh, Jack the Ripper is happening at this time. There is mass reporting of these casualties. So it's just kind of like everywhere. So newspapers and the Telegraph are super prominent. So it's just like, it's all happening in your face all the time. If you want to connect this back to science at all, which I'm going to do right now. Do it. Poe was a longtime resident of Baltimore, Maryland. And he died in Baltimore, in fact. Mm-hmm. He died footsteps away from where my office was. Actually, what? that's not true. He was found unconscious footsteps from where my office was when I was a postdoc and then taken to a hospital where he died. Is there like a plaque um, or something there? Yeah, I was just going to ask the same thing. No, it's just, it's just well known oh. that that street corner is where he was collected. Should we just uh, just north of Fells Point in Baltimore, which is the oldest part of the city? Mm-hmm. Not surprising. Yeah, pretty cool. That's where the rats are as big as cocker spaniels, something mm. like that. Should we should we fund a plaque at the spot where he was found unconscious? I mean, we could talk about that for sure. Maybe we should do a uh, a science night fundraising campaign for a for a plaque in honor of Poe. Why not? I feel right. like we could get a list of random plaques. Yes. Oh, I like that. Obs- obscure ones. I'd like to amend my perfect death. Okay. Okay, what is it? So I do want to not wake up, but ultimately when I do wake up, not in this world, I want there to be sitting next to me on my nightstand a copy of the handbook for the recently deceased. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Shake, 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 Sinora, shake your body liner. Shake, shake. Oh. That's perfect for me. Perfect. That's what I want. Speaking of lots and lots of dead people happening, so... <laughs> We said, like, yeah, death is happening all the time, but it's kind of happening close to home. The thing that changes that in the United States, at least, is the U.S. Civil War, which is, like, a turning Mm. point within a turning point. It's, like, boxes within boxes. Because here's the thing. Lots of stuff happened in response to the U.S. Civil War, and we're not going to talk about any of it except for the amount and manner of death that occurred. That is our takeaway we're going to pull from the civil war right now maybe if we like this we like doing this and we do more like science history we're going to use the civil war as a turning point for more other things because there's like technology transportation communication embalming that's all happening now but all we need to know is that like a lot of people died in very bad ways very far away from home and abolition i think is the number one there's not a lot of science around that but for our history podcast that would be great Yes, I agree. But let's just, you know, the two greatest things to come out of the Civil War were abolition. Oh, sure. And the Missouri-Kansas football rivalry. Oh, that's it. I just hear yeah. that all the time. I feel it's like yeah. on a mm-hmm. three to four week schedule right now. Something like that. <laughs> Listeners would would not know that we hear this all the time because I always cut it out. But <laughs> But I think this is like 12 episodes in a row. <laughs> <laughs> that Jason has <laughs> snuck that rivalry into into this. Uh, so just to be gonna, clear, I'm though, keep it in this time. This is this is the only episode where it was fitting. Yeah, very yeah. true. And then I go home and tell my husband, and then he goes off on a rant, like oh, I haven't no. heard it before. And I'm like, oh no, That's right. it's still going. Please record that. Right, That's the I will. Point. I will. 
<laughs> Just bring him on. Right. We'll settle it exactly. here once and for all. <laughs> Let's talk about numbers. From 1861 to 1865, 620,000 soldiers died on the battlefield. That is not taking into account civilian deaths or uh, enslaved people who died because they were not counted as soldiers because America. Wow. Usually, these deaths were happening far from home and in pretty gruesome manners. Basically, we are violating the Ars Moriendi during the American Civil War. So, it was pretty common for soldiers to never return home, never receive proper burial rites, and for families to never receive closure. Basically, all a family member was going to get was a telegram, which is also a new technology telling them that their beloved son or family member has died. And this created a bit of a demand. If there's anything we know about those Victorian industrialists, if there's a demand, they're going to capitalize on this somewhere. So there was a desire to know the status of someone's eternal fate. And for the rest of the episode, we're going to talk about the way that people cashed in on this demand to know what was happening. But I think... As we, as we walk boldly into the good night of the ad break, we're going to leave with a quote from folklorist, Vermont historian, and one of my favorite people in the world, Joe Citro, to set the stage. During that dark time, the population of the spirit world took a dramatic jump. Demand for spirit communication spiked because grieving families were eager for news of dead loved ones. Can you hear me? Do you smell the foul corruption? Things get a little strange here. And what about me? Like, really strange. Grotesque stench of rotten flesh. Yet consider this an invitation to our humble podcast. I'm only just starting. Just search, and we'll be waiting to greet you with a big hello. Come here. And welcome to Pulp from Beyond the Veil. So we're back here table. in the parlor, it's time to respond. sitting around this round Send us table. a message from I feel like maybe we should dim the lights and see if we can get any signs from the other side, because we're talking about spiritualism in this episode. Why are the lights so, flickering? One, one may not know how people communicate through the veil, Dr. Dean. Or maybe we gotta update our our electricity, our wiring. Maybe if you get that fusion thing working, we could have a right? more sustainable <laughs> and reliable grid. Wouldn't that be great? That's right. Yeah. Is this parlor in Indiana? Because if it is, it's all coal generated. That's oh. why it's flickering. Let's go back to our definition. Spiritualism means I think we can talk to the dead, and we're gonna use this person called a medium. A medium could be an actual living person, or it could be some kind of spirit guide, which was something or it could be the humble ouija board which came about during this time as well you could use your little planchette to to communicate with the deceased so again that's what we're talking about so let's talk about two of the most famous media there's a lot during this era but we're going to talk about 
two of my favorites. And there's like a lot of stuff about these two called the Fox Sisters. They grew up in Hydesville, New York, but they became really prominent in Rochester. You can see there's TV shows, there's movies, there's comic books, there's... I'm going to link to some of the free things that you can see. There's a great podcast called the the Foxes of Hydesville that you can go listen to. But basically, two young girls tried to communicate with the dead, and as far as they were concerned, they were able to do it in their what they thought was a haunted home in Hydesville, New York. Uh, and that scared the townsfolk to no end. They got run out of town. They got run to the more cosmopolitan and forward-thinking Rochester, New York, where they were able to set up shop in, in this Victorian home with a very, very large purpose-built Victorian parlor so they could communicate with the dead of the thousands of customers. It is wild oh how much gosh. money they made. Thousands of people traveled to Rochester, New York. And this is back when Rochester was like cool and up and coming and not like post-Kodak Rochester, which is kind of like not quite as nice. I'm sorry for anybody from Rochester right now. I, I love you. Rochester's still fun. P- please, please don't yell at me. Anyway, what they would do is they would bring people into these parlors they would set the scene they would lower the lights they would play some ominous music and they would talk to you in a floaty voice as i am doing right now so that you think i am weird enough to be able to come communicate with the dead and then there would be a series of rapping that you would hear to answer the questions that you were trying to broadcast through the veil if you were to choose a medium who is it going to be, Jason? Oda Mae Brown. Why is that? Tell me. Tell me why. Because she was the greatest character in the movie Ghost. That's true. Not Lydia Dietz? I think, no. I think that could be fun, right? I mean, perhaps, but uh, yeah, I believed it. Like, you know, this was an Oscar-worthy performance from Whoopi Goldberg. True. And, true. Uh, Ghost? Right? Oscar-winning, might say. Not just worthy, Oscar-winning. I feel like my medium of choice would be... From the same movie, the the clay in that scene where they're yes. where they're forming the clay, different kind of medium. Yeah, mostly because I just want Patrick Swayze to hug me. You know, I've never seen that movie. I mean, now you gotta. We I, can have I've a reaction only, podcast of you, right? <laughs> me going back and watching movies from the eighties and nineties that mm-hmm. I missed, which is most of them. Who do we want to contact? Who does Science Night want to talk to? And I feel like it'd be easy if it'd be like, hey, we should talk to Charles Darwin and ask him what's up with his views on on uh, evolution or whatever. But that's not fun. That's not a fun answer. Jason, what do we think? You know, that's a good question, actually. I would want to talk to Darwin, but the question I would want to ask him really is, did you read Mendel's paper that was in your desk? Ooh. Oh. You want to put him on blast. Yeah, that's what I want to know. Did yeah. you read it? Or, um, or like, hey... When did Alfred Wallace's paper really get to you? Right. I mean, yes, I would ask that too. But more than that, like as an academic who came into this field in the late 90s, early 2000s, when we didn't have an easy way to store all of these reprints digitally, Mm -hmm. I had paper copies of articles that I photocopied in the library. And when I would go to the library to make these photocopies, I would photocopy, you know, several papers at a time and they would end up in a stack of papers that i needed to read and that stack of papers would dwindle over the days but there were times that paper on the top just got put on the bottom Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and never 
just kept getting you know kicked down the can you know the can kept getting kicked down the road a little bit longer and i'm just wondering if that's what happened with mendel's paper right did darwin have it he's like oh i really need to get around to reading this but like i just don't have the time to put into this right now or i don't understand this i'm gonna have to look this up right oh well i'm gonna have to do that later i don't have a copy of this book with me to make me understand it or help me understand it so did it just kept keep ending up on the bottom of the pile or did he read it and did he file it away in his desk drawer because he didn't think much of it so there we go we gotta get a medium and then chuck you got some questions to answer here on science night that's gonna be our yeah. that's gonna be our first our first patreon sponsored episode is uh, that's right <laughs> us contacting charles darwin from beyond the veil that's right the real scoop from charlie let's get it you know who was like really into spiritualism flawless segue incoming alfred wallace oh man boy. did he love spiritualism and it wasn't just like him. It wasn't these like small town people either that were getting fleeced by the Fox sisters. Cause uh, guess what? All of these mediums eventually like they got debunked. And with the Fox sisters specifically, it was them being like, "Hey, this is how we do it. We're gonna we're gonna turn the lights on and show you that there was just a person standing behind a wall smacking stuff. There was like a false wall that they could walk around and hit different things." Uh, some people would have like a proto fog machine where they could make a little bit of mist. I don't want to get too much into the grossness of what some of these people did, but, uh, just, just Google ectoplasm and see what it was. It's just, I'm not going to talk about it. This is a for all ages podcast, but I was like, I think we can all guess. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, but you have to make sure if you're going to Google it that you Google it and then ask for no results related to Ghostbusters. Yeah, you do want to do that. It's like easy to dismiss this as like, oh, these random people were just sad and they went. But there were some pretty prominent folks. We talked about Alfred Wallace specifically, but Mary Todd Lincoln, Thomas Edison, Leo Marconi. They were all big into the spiritualism game. Tom Tommy Edison was there in New Jersey doing what New Jersey people do, trying to make machines to talk to the dead. You can probably still see that in Asbury Park to this day. Uh, but he was. They were all really into it. Mary Todd Lincoln was into something called spirit spirit photography, where she would get herself photographed. And then the like medium who was a photographer who is very good at transposing or double exposing film. So it looked like Abraham Lincoln was standing behind her in a ghostly image, but it was really just trick photography. Are you telling me that Thomas Edison invented the electric light bulb just so it could flicker? Yes, mm-hmm. probably. <laughs> I mean, what it's else? To... Uh, hold on. Invented meaning, in meaning filed the patent. <laughs> Correct. Yes, yes, already yes. invented. <laughs> yes, let's be clear. Let's be clear. Yeah. Now, that said, <laughs> let me further that. Um, do you think he patented the system for electrical distribution just so that it could flicker in multiple places? There we go. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, and he killed that elephant, too. People don't right. right. talk enough about how Thomas Edison killed an elephant in Chicago. Uh, Wait, that's right. what? I mean, to be honest, oh, yeah. I yeah. don't go know for it, about James. that. So, he was Mr. AC, and he was showing how how dangerous DC is by using it to electrify things and kill them. So he killed an elephant at the, uh, the 1890, the Columbian, the Chicago world's fair in the 1800s, uh, the Columbian exposition. He famously killed an elephant, uh, to show how dangerous the 
competing okay. distribution system was. And that elephant is who I want to contact through Otome Brown. Yeah. And I want Chuck Darwin to be riding on it. Edison advocated for DC current. So he so was AC tr- was the dangerous one. No, DC was. That's why I'm trying to figure this out. I'm just saying he killed an elephant. That's wild. I'm just saying it's not going to be DC. It's going to be Marvel. It sounds more Marvel than yeah, DC to it, me. Well, no, yeah. I don't think Marvel will kill an elephant. They're not dark enough. Uh, maybe you're right. Yeah. Maybe it is DC. Like we would have to watch Infinite Elephants Die and also The Waynes. Also, they have to die. In every DC movie, there is the death of of Tom and Martha Wayne and an elephant. Mm-hmm. That's canon. That's right. That's right. Yep, that is canon. I agree. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Edison and scientists, just very briefly. Do it. Do it. So he killed that elephant because he was trying to prove that his method, DC current, was safer. And the reason being because he was saying AC current has a wider um, range of uh, voltages compared to DC. So scientists, stop trying to advocate for something that you are studying. You should be advocating for the betterment of humanity. Mm -hmm. And elephants. And animals. Do you think that would pass through Iacuc? Steffi, I know you don't know what Iacuc is. Jason, do you think you could pass that through? Actually, it would be easier to get um, a protocol approved where you electrocuted people Mm -hmm. than it would be to get if you were going to electrocute animals. And that's because an animal can't can't refuse consent, right? A human can consent to that. Now, any human that would consent to that, there are issues there too, right? I mean, is it a coercive consent? Or is it, you know, is it really by their own free will and accord? And if it is by their own free will and accord, like, what are they going after, mm-hmm. right? Like, are we talking about uh, experiments like uh, back to Ghostbusters, right? Peter Venkman, right? With uh, his electrocution studies that he was doing, which were totally unethical, by the way, because uh, regardless of what the, uh, the male student would answer, he would electrocute the male student. But whatever the female student who he was flirting with would uh answer he would uh tell her she had the right answer and so totally unethical uh, but um still it wasn't unusual to think about that in the mid 80s when that movie came out it probably is a little more unusual to think about it now yeah we have irb approval talk about another flawless segue because right now i want to do like a brief aside talking so we talked about how like science and technology created the victorian era they vacated like this weird pre-modern era and that is like kind of what allowed spiritualism to kind of take hold right all these things were happening but i want to talk about the specific experiments that came about in response to spiritualism because there was some people got super into the idea that one could like scientifically prove the afterlife because they have these mediums that are talking to the afterlife because again like this was totally accepted at the time there were some people trying to debunk it and that happened more and more often as time went on. But at like the very beginnings and the high, uh, the high point of this, when there were actual newspapers devoted to spiritualism, this was accepted. So that's why I, I kind of take umbrage when people use like people dabbling in mediums as a way to discredit their scientific work. Specifically with Alfred Wallace, this happens all the time. He's like this kooky guy because he was real sad that his brother, wife, and son all died. And... I mean, like, America was messed up at this time. The Civil War had just happened, and people were real sad. So I, I think it's, like, unfair to to make fun of them too much. Um, except for the wallpaper. That I'm 100% on board with. But does anyone know about the 21 grams experiment? No. Because that's something that's ever come up. 
Yeah. So mm-hmm. you might have heard about it. You just never heard of its name. But basically, this is 1907. Uh, Duncan McDougall, who was from Haverhill, Massachusetts, which is not too far from me, he basically thought that you could weigh the soul to prove oh. that the soul existed, right? So oh. this is when I he... I have heard of this, but very briefly. Yeah. Okay, go. And this, this is like one of the things we've been talking about a lot is like the unexpected things to come from these experiments that seem like kind of pointless. So he basically had animals and other patients that were close to the end of life on this very, very precise table. And at the time of death, he kind of found that the subject would lose about 21 grams. And he hypothesized that this was the weight of the soul. In reality, you know, a lot of things are happening at the time of death that could change a very, very, very precise measurement system. But from that, we got like a way more precise way to measure things. So there's like the unexpected outcome. But that was like directly in response to and and, and in support of spiritualism. But then there was like some guys that were like, this is real dumb. Why are we, why are we doing this? I'm going to make it my entire career to like debunk these things. And sometimes it was like accidentally I became a debunker because I wanted to like prove that spiritualism existed and you just get so downtrodden after time after time after time of it being debunked. So that's what happened specifically with Arthur Conan Doyle who created Sherlock Holmes he convinced Scientific American to have a $2,500 sponsored prize where if a medium could come in to a very um, strict test site and show that their mediumship worked, they would get this prize. It was never awarded. Every time somebody came in, it was totally debunked because uh, if they're not in their own parlor where they can do their parlor tricks, it's just not going to work. And then famously, Harry Houdini... The uh, handcuff guy who made his career of sleight of hand and getting out of tight situations and like a little bit of magic, right? He's like, hold on. This is like people exploiting very sad people for their money. Towards the end of his life, he made it his life's work to just discredit spiritualists. And you can read a lot of really good books about that. I liked, I read an article about this and he, mm-hmm. he told his wife that if, if you could communicate with the dead and he was like, like you said, disproving it, um, he would try everything he could to communicate with her for like the 10 years after his death. And so she's like, yeah, I got nothing. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing happening. Yeah. So this sounds like a Victorian era version of Penn and Teller fool us. Oh, kind yeah. of, yeah. <laughs> Except Houdini did have to die for the ultimate proof to be <laughs> to right, be had. Right. Penn and Teller did this. Uh, there's the entire. Oh, who's the uh, skeptics society guy? Randy that does this. Yeah, Randy. Um, he does it with like mesmerists and everything. Cause that's the thing. Like spiritualism never really went away. We just call it different stuff. We call it like psychics and we call it, uh, tarot card readers and palm readers. And now it's kind of like a more tongue in cheek thing. It, people aren't necessarily going in for readings with the idea that they're going to be able to assure the immortality of their loved one's soul. It's more of a fun thing. It's more of a parlor trick. One might say. 
my favorite term for spiritualism or for a medium um, is deuteragonist. What? What? Okay. Yeah, that Where'd is that word come from? I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that that is the title of Oda Mae Brown's character. (laughs) She is a deuteragonist. I think when people are experiencing death and missing their loved ones, and you want that reassurance, it's just, it's so sad that people take advantage of that. Right? Mm -hmm. That's the bad part, right? It's not that, it's not that people... It's not that the grieving people would go and seek something like this out. It's that people would cash in on that. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot that can be said about anything surrounding monetizing death. Oh my uh, gosh, yeah. I come from that world myself, from the funeral industry. Yes, and I mean, listen, I don't agree with that at all. I mean, I agree with your point. I don't agree with monetizing death and taking advantage of people who are grieving. That said... You can make an argument, one can make an argument that uh, this is a service that's being provided to them to help with their grief. True. Mm-hmm. Right? I don't know that I buy that argument because I'm sure it's more of a capitalism thing than anything else, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. But, you know, there is a service that's being provided, right? It might help with grief in some way. Well, and to like give a little bit more credit back to those wacky Victorian mediums, uh, that's what their argument was too. They were doing something that they knew was fake, but they saw it as helping people in their community. Uh, That's at least what they were saying, but they were also becoming very wealthy doing this. Uh, The Fox sisters traveled all over the world as mediums and made a lot of money in Rochester, New York. But anyway, I think it's time that we close the veil and come to the end of another edition of the Science Night podcast. And we had so much fun talking about these wacky Victorians and their wallpaper. Uh, so if you like this and you want us to do more about it, uh, you know, tell us. Send us an email. You can find all the information we have on our social media. So why don't you follow us on social media? If you want to follow me, my name is James. You can find me on x.com at James underscore read three, where I will be... Uh, sharing my adventures in postseason baseball where you can hear all about the philadelphia phillies which i don't know maybe there's only two games left and you won't hear about it for much more but that's where you can find it steffi where can everybody follow you you can find me on twitter x i you know i have i don't know what to do on that site anymore um blue sky i'm on blue sky now and oh, okay. other things yeah yeah Where's your, what's your mastodon handle uh, they're all Steffi Deem with two Fs. There we go. So, so just, hey, download a microblogging site and search Steffi Deem. See what happens. Yeah. Sounds like Steffi needs a link tree. Jason, where can people contact you uh, through non-Veil related means? Um, I'm still on Twitter X. You can follow me there at OregonJM. But right now it's just a depressing shit show. So forgive me. I mean, it's always been that. It's just more I depressing right now. gone. <laughs> Right. Well, uh, we heard that, so we're good. Yeah. Steffi, Steffi has slipped between the veil, uh, but I think she Doc- would want you... Dr. Deem, can you hear us? Yeah. I think if she was able to communicate from beyond the veil, she would want I you to follow you. Can you hear the podcast me? at Pod on Twitter and Cynite at 
threads, you can visit our home on the web, cyanite.com, for past episodes, links to the people we talk to and the stories we talk about, and our merch. We got new merch. Go ahead and buy it. It's great. There is so much to see, and you can see it all at cyanite.com. We will be back with a very special Halloween episode on the 31st of October. But until then... I, I'm hearing from Dr. Deem from Beyond the Veil. What does she say? She says, Damn, James, what the hell did you do to your hair? That's the outro. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz.